So there's a concept in uh, the defensive side of football called lane discipline. Every person on the line has a particular area they have to focus on, and it's very narrow. You know, it's often the gap between two individuals. But if that person loses lane discipline, someone takes advantage of it. So Cranky has always had lane discipline. Cranky has always, has always said, this is what we do. We're going to do it as well as we can. And we're not going to uh, dabble in anything else. I've been pretty good at it, I think, over the years. Uh, and it's why uh, they've maintained, I think, a level of brand loyalty that maybe a lot of other labels haven't. It's not a, you know, it's not a serve all record label. The Commandments was our way of sort of delineating the minefield that we were that we were seeing in front of us as as we uh, moved along. Part of it was just uh, some aesthetic choices. You know, neither Joel or I like uh, think that a band should put their picture on the cover of a record. I think I said in the book, you know, you're not the Ramones. I think. Uh, there's some bands that can do that, and uh, most of them can't. We don't like lyrics, lyric sheets. People should, people should be able to leave the lyrics of a song to their imagination for their own interpretation. And then there were some business things. We wanted to be straightforward in, in our accounting. We wanted to delineate when and how royalties would be calculated and paid. We wanted to have as much leeway as possible in the people we were doing business with. We felt that uh, putting all your eggs in one basket, having one distributor distribute all your records, be accountable for all your, you know, be responsible for all your business was foolish. We had seen how uh, labels had signed those sort of contracts with distributors and they ruined the day. You know, they didn't get paid or the, their partner went out of business and they were, you know, left holding, holding a big old empty sack. Uh, there were some, there were some uh, sort of tendencies in the business aesthetically that we didn't like. We don't, you know, we didn't, and I still dislike tribute albums. I don't like bands showing off their chops or showing off their record collection by uh, covering other bands or classic rock or, you know, whatever. We came to the determination that the seven inch single was a money loser. So we wouldn't do seven inch singles, despite the fact that there were, you know, everybody and their brother was putting out seven inch singles at that point. So, you know, it was sort of a, at one, on once, in one line of thinking it was a what not to do exercise. And the other line of thinking was, it was a, uh, a delineation of values and a, you know, what would be called a value statement if we'd gone to business school. I can't be on the record saying anything. What's that sound? Hey, 
Want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? The proposition sounds intriguing. The proposition sounds very attractive. I tell you, it's a thoroughly sound proposition. Seems a sound proposition. What brought you here? The sound is the protagonist. My name is Bruce Adams. I'm the author of You're With Stupid, which is being published by the University of Texas Press in November 2022. It's uh, part memoir, part oral history, uh, covering my experiences in Chicago from the time I arrived there in about 1987, working for Touch and Go Records, uh, to the time I ended up co-founding Cranky in 1993, and then my experiences there into the early 2000s. The word indie, in my mind, uh, can have two discrete meanings. One being uh, independent, which is an economic or business definition of how music is recorded and distributed. And then the other being uh, aesthetic or stylistic or genre. Yeah, that was sort of the cauldron in, in which Cranky was formed. The indie rock, the development of indie rock as a genre, the, uh, the massive growth of that, of that genre and sort of that sector of the music business. That So that was, a, that was the atmosphere in which we were working. And uh, it, was a, it was a time in which uh, Many, many people thought there was a brass ring out there, out there for them to grab. The success of labels and of distribution and of record stores at the time encouraged a proliferation of uh, record labels, of bands signing to record labels, of bands putting out records. And so that's, uh, that's where Joel and I found ourselves in uh, in late 1992 when we were just sort of shooting the breeze about what we would do if we owned a record label. If a record label or a band wanted to get their music into record stores, uh, they had two options. Either you could or go around the country talking to individual and records, individuals in record stores, or you could, uh, which actually is what Corey Rusk did when he first started Touching Go Records. He would go around to various stores when his band was on tour, bringing singles with him. Uh, but uh, the distribution setup 
began to uh, coalesce when some established businesses began to see that record stores were in need of music from American independent labels. They had a they had already been importing British records, so you know you could go to your record store and find a new record by the Kako Twins or the Cure or the Gang Four. Uh, but those businesses uh, began to take notice of the independent labels that were popping up around the U.S. and started to distribute them. And the same thing happened in Canada. Cargo, being a Canadian company, they uh, they took on a lot of the big American indie labels like Epitaph, Touch and Go, Discord, etc., etc. When I started working at Cargo in 1991, the Canadian company had opened an office in Chicago to distribute in the United States. Not only because uh, they had uh, contacts with American indie labels, but because Cargo, the record label at the time, uh, represented, or Cargo Distribution represented a good number of Canadian labels that had records with the pro with, with profiles in the United States. Bands like the Asexuals uh, had some following. And then uh, Cargo signed uh, Shadowy Men on a Shadowy Planet, who did the theme song for Kids in the Hall. Kids in the Hall was visible on American television. One thing led to another. Uh, so. I got to work at Cargo when they're operating out of a, a refurbished garage uh, and we're beginning really to distribute a lot of these Canadian records, the usual gang of American records and they were bringing in imports too. So what happened in Chicago, by my estimation, and this probably would have happened with or without Cranky being involved, was that a pool of musicians, some of whom had come up through punk rock and into the development of indie rock, some of whom were worked outside that genre, who were jazz musicians or improvising musicians, began to uh, kind of coalesce and to ferment a type of music that crossed a lot of boundaries, that merged a lot of types of music, and that uh, began to get a lot of attention outside the city. Uh, so in a, in a way, uh, the indie, the economic or the business definition of indie music began to change. It became more inclusive it became uh, wider in its frame of frames of reference, uh, and it began to uh, include a, a, a group of musicians who were not necessarily wedded to the notion of bass, drums, guitar, playing in the tradition of the Velvet Underground or the Stooges.
from a, a geographically, Chicago's in the center of the country. Uh, we have a big international airport. Uh, so uh, the two distributors I worked at, first Kaleidoscope and then Cargo, were in a position to get uh, record shipments from London, say on a Monday morning, put an order in on a Thursday, get the order in the next Monday, pack the, back, pack the orders up for your stores and ship them out on a Tuesday. Uh, so we, uh, we, had, we had the opportunity to bring in a lot of things from outside. Uh, my partner Joel remind, reminded me when I talked to him for this book about when he was a kid in the suburbs of Chicago going to Wax Tracks record in Lincoln Park and Wax Tracks in those days was importing records themselves so he'd walk into the store and there'd be 50 copies of the new Cure single there. That, that simply wasn't happening elsewhere in the Midwest or the Mid-South. Um, so geographically, if you had a distributor in Chicago, you were well-placed to bring things in, and then you could get them out. You could ship to big city, other big Midwestern cities. You could ship to Texas. Uh, and if you ship to the West Coast, uh, the, your competitors or the other businesses located there had an even fur had a longer wait to get records uh, from the UK. So if um, people in Chicago were able to get new records from 4AD or the uh, Trojan or any of these UK and a lot of European labels ahead of everybody else, or at least uh, at the same time as uh, their friends in New York City, say, or Boston. Also, the notion that people that were interested in making music, if they lived in Louisville, Kentucky, or, or Minneapolis, or Pekin, Illinois, like Doug home from Tortoise, they all came to Chicago to live. It was pretty cheap. Uh, there were areas that were not gentrified yet that you could live in. You could get a cheap apartment. If you were banned, you could get a pretty decent rehearsal space. And there were venues where you could play reasonably often if you wanted to. And again, geography, your band could go to Madison and then Minneapolis for the weekend or South you could go to Champaign and St. Louis or you could go to uh, Columbus and Cleveland. You were, uh, if you wanted to do an all-nighter, you were a one drive away from New York City. So it was, uh, geography had a lot to do with it. And then uh, the fact that a number of businesses, be they record stores, record labels, or distributors set up shop in Chicago and did pretty well. You know, it worked the other way too. A lot of American indie labels uh, were very interested in getting distributed in the UK and in Europe. So there were companies in the UK that specialized in that, companies in Germany especially, that did that uh, for American labels. It was an interesting time because uh, things began to co-mingle. 
across all these territories. Uh, and it was possible, and uh, it was possible for someone uh, in the UK to read, say, Melody Maker, the NME about the butthole surfers, and likewise possible for someone in the United States to pick up NME and read about Spaceman 3. So there was, there's a lot of uh, interaction there commercially and in terms of bands and aesthetics and things like that. Well, um, if you were a white cisgendered male like myself living on the north side of Chicago, uh, there were opportunities to uh, hear music and to view musicians from the south side and from a deeper tradition uh, in Chicago music like the AACM for example, could go uh, to the University of Chicago and see uh, the Art Ensemble of Chicago perform, or I could go to a club on the South Loop of Chicago called the Velvet Lounge. It was owned by the saxophonist Fred Anderson and see uh, a lot of the players in the Chicago improvised music tradition uh, play and see them eventually play with white and musicians from the north side and with European musicians. It was not anything like living in those communities or interacting with individuals in those communities on a day-to-day -day basis, but it was an opportunity uh, to glimpse what people on the other side of the city were doing and to, uh, to see the possibilities for interaction, limited as they were. Uh, I could go to uh, a record store and get uh, the latest house singles or see uh, some of the more popular DJs actually spin records uh, for people. And I could go to a couple clubs and, and see those sort of things. I was very much blinkered in my own little world, but the opportunities were there. I took advantage of them a little bit, and I know a lot of people that took advantage of them much more than I did. So that, for example, when I was working at Cargo, we had a dance music uh, section and the guys, all the guys that worked there uh, were able to go to raves outside the town, to go to house clubs, to listen to the latest music coming out of Chicago and Detroit. So it, it was a, there was a lot of bubbling going on in Chicago and there were and are, as you say, very uh, segregational habits, policies, forces at work in the city, but a determined person of, of any race and any gender could go and discover those things. It took an effort, but you know, it took an effort to see punk rock shows too uh, in those days. So uh, there was a there was a lot of fermentation going on, and there were limited amounts of uh, interaction and collaboration going on that widened. Uh, and now it's uh, actually pretty amazing to see the things that are coming out of Chicago that sort of uh, have have kind of jumped those barriers sometimes.
why did we start Cranky? I mean, why does anybody start a record label? Either you want to, uh, you want to document the work in your community or among your friends or in a particular scene that you think is worthwhile and you believe you can do it better than other people can. And for us, it was more or less the latter. We'd had a great exposure by our experiences in the business to uh, people doing things in ways that we thought were not, not creative, sustainable, uh, and uh, honest. <laughs> so uh, we thought we could do a better job. Uh, we just needed the uh, we needed this uh, the light to get the fuse lit. And it turned out that Le Bradford was that opportunity for us. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the book, frankly, is my love song to Le Bradford. I think that, I think that band, uh, well, I always think that band is criminally underrated. Um, I always will. Well, you know, um, so I spent 20 years of my life promoting bands and, uh, by, by my own personal nature and by the nature of the bands and the music, nobody ever gave them enough credit. There was never enough coverage. It's never happy, never content. In the case of Le Bradford, I think that that first single in context of everything else that was coming into the cranky warehouse was as a contemporary group was completely different than everything else we were hearing. I remember Vivian put it on the turntable and played it because there was nothing else that we were getting and we got dozens of packages every day that sounded like it. And there are very few bands you can name, I think, that made the made the jump from record to record to record that Le Bradford made. These um, they constantly expanded and uh, I'd say they expanded their sound and they uh, developed it and they varied it over the over the course of their records so that you could hear. Uh, in their music, you could hear ambience, you could hear noise, you could hear Appalachian music, um, you could hear Brazilian music, you could hear electronics. But it was all distinctly Le Bradford. And if the, and they, I think, although as individuals you would never see, I could never see them doing this. They, but as a group, they kicked down a door. Within the within the indie rock aesthetic, within the scene, to uh, to lead people to think more about long form music, uh, cinematic music, 
you know, and for me to explain it to my parents or to my friends who weren't uh, weren't cognizant of what uh, I was doing, I would say it's cinematic, right? Le Bradford were a cinematic group, and it, uh, I know they've had they've had some music used in television shows and things since then, but you know, again, I never I never quite understood why some director could get in touch with them and say make some music for my movie. Uh, and there were there were not a lot of bands when they started that could do that, and there were not a lot of bands when they left that were doing that consistently and uh, and sort of a constantly shifting and elaborating their sound. We, we looked at the city of Chicago and we saw a bunch of really good record labels that were run very well, that uh, had success, and that were positioned more or less to, uh, to pick up anything new in Chicago that they thought was worthwhile. From our point of view, uh, there's really no point uh, competing with Touch and Go or Drag City or Thrill Jockey uh, for a local band. It just uh, it just seemed like those labels had more to offer, and they were uh, they were on they were on the uh, on the beam. It led us to look a little further afield, and uh, as the label developed and as an aesthetic sort of began to come together. Uh, we weren't seeing a lot of bands in Chicago that, that we thought would fit in well with what we were doing. Yeah, it was, it was really interesting. I remember uh, I was at a show at Metro, Cabaret Metro. It was Stereo Lab, I think Gaster Del Sol and La Bradford. And I was talking with Greg Cott, who was the... Um, music critic at the, for the Chicago Tribune at the time. And we were both talking about that uh, those three bands uh, were each in their own way expressing this sort of uh, idea or were part of this sort of movement that was very hard to define, uh, very hard to, to pin down, but was definitely happening and was happening all over the place. Uh, so consequently, uh, and Cranky was just uh, just oriented toward getting uh, getting quality groups and groups that that we could work with who wanted to work with us, and we didn't really define ourselves by geography.
And then a band like Stereo Lab. Stereo Lab was uh, very, very important to what we were doing. They uh, they gave LeBradford a lot of early support. Uh, they put out a LeBradford single on a duophonic label, toured with LeBradford. I uh, tell a story in the book about how Carter Brown from LeBradford took it on himself to grab a couple of synthesizers and drive from Virginia to New York City for Stereo Lab's first show because he heard they couldn't get their synthesizers in in the country and he felt it would be a tragedy if the bleeps and bloops weren't there for the show. And Stereo Lab uh, collaborated a lot with Tortoise as well. There were, these connections had to exist in those days. They had to be cultivated because uh, bands relied on each other for mutual support. Whether it was booking shows, having a place to stay, uh, getting recommendations on on shows or people to work with. There was this web of dependency, interconnections between people. So it worked out very well for Cranky and it worked out for a lot of other people as well. I think, you know, any of the members of Tortoise or Bettina Richards at Thrill Jockey would say that their connections uh, in the UK and in Germany really made the made the band and made the label successful over time. I mean, I, I did a little bit. I did a little bit in the book about Bristol, England. There were this, just a ton of bands, you know, maybe a half dozen bands coming out of Bristol that we would have loved to work with. And we made an effort to, and we ended up working with a band called Amp, and then some of the other bands were picked up by Drag City and others. It was, there were just things happening all over the place. But we were positioned in Chicago in a musical and business sort of focal point where we had access to all of those things and we could discover all those things pretty quickly. And it's a pity that Peter passed away. I hope the the label continues in some uh, in some fashion. That was they were they were very big uh, very big supporters of the label at Migo, especially the band of Bradford. And uh, at one point, they contacted us about European distribution, although we had a bigger fish to fry. But that was. Uh, that was a crucial part, I think, of the success of Cranky at an international level was that uh, whatever we were doing, people in Europe in the in the creative electronic, I guess electronic or whatever you want, experimental or whatever, whatever you want to call that scene, were, were paying attention uh, and were supportive of what we were doing and vice versa. New Zealand was a big, yeah, big, 
big influence on on the label or a big uh, a big sort of center of gravity, not just for Cranky, but for a lot of American indie labels starting in the early 90s. Uh, you know, the Flying Nun was a very, you know, had a very popular following in the United States. Uh, and then later on, Expressway, Drag City uh, was involved in some of these New Zealand bands. Uh, Tim Adams and his Ajax distribution, and he did records eventually too. A lot of New Zealand bands, so it was big. Uh, it was a big node for everybody, especially in Chicago. Uh, what was happening in New Zealand and the bands in New Zealand, and uh, almost right off the bat, uh, Cranky made connections with a band called Dada Ma, and then two successor bands and. Uh, Roy Montgomery. So the more the more uh, avant-garde, experimental, out there edges of the New Zealand scene uh, were really important to what we were doing. Yeah, those are the, you know, I write a lot about Wendy and Carl. They continue to make very interesting music and they're, you know, they epitomize the self-reliant DIY attitude. A little bit about Jessica Bailiff. I think her her work has been uh, overlooked a little bit. I think her, uh, especially the sort of music she made in her first three albums, I think are very relevant now. I think a lot of, uh, especially young women, could could listen to those music. And I hear a lot of her work uh, in a lot of contemporary music I hear. was a result of compact disc technology. The, just the physical processes of putting music on a compact disc are much quicker and more direct than those of uh, pressing a record. It, uh, the compact disc gives you more time to put music on a record. Compact disc is lighter, easier to ship, less expensive to order and to ship out. So there was a there was an explosion of music across the board from all sorts of genres that became available to listen to. And a lot of these, a lot of these record labels, a lot of these types of music had 
had been available before, but a lot of the distributors that were sort of picking up indie rock uh, began to carry those as well. So they became available to people for people to listen to. That uh, I think that combined in Chicago again with the uh, with dance music, with the opportunity to hear international musicians come and play, uh, with the opportunity to see local jazz performers play. There was there was a sort of a petri dish going on, and people had more opportunity to get access to these things than they would have if they you know lived in. Uh, I don't know, Pekin, Illinois, or you know, Champaign, or uh, Louisville, or any of those places. It was happening all the time. Uh-oh, I'm sorry, my colleague is going to be joining. So uh, people had access to all these things. They could, they could hear it on the, on the college radio station if they wanted to. Uh, you could hear it on... Uh, international or ethnic stations in Chicago. Uh, and it was just sort of, it was just sort of in the air and people had access to it. And at a certain point, uh, playing guitars louder and faster lost its charm for a lot of people. And people had, and people uh, were able to uh, bring up to the forefront things that they may have been dabbling in or curious about. Uh, they they had an incentive to try and try the to try those things out in a musical performance way because they they felt that they had done all they could with rock music. I think, uh, and this has nothing to do with my book or with the time period, but as I look out on the on the horizon now, I see that uh, the solo project has been especially uh, useful, I think, for female musicians. Uh, whether it's, you know, Grouper, Japanese Breakfast, Squirrel, Flower, all these, that, that sort of, uh, that sort of self-reliant, self-enclosed uh, point has been has been uh, seems to have been beneficial, or at least adopted by a lot of female musicians. Uh, in our case, I think it had something to do with geography. You know, with uh, Roy Montgomery sitting in an empty apartment in New York City, uh, with time on his hands. Uh, Something you know, whether it's uh, Richmond, Virginia, or Dearborn, Michigan, or any of those things, um, self-reliance or you know the the tightness of a small a small group it's it's been helpful for some people to make music, and it certainly uh, lowers the expenses of touring and and things like that. Um, I think too. Uh, being in a conventional rock band was a tough thing. You know, there's, there's, there were challenges for the cranky bands going out and performing 
basically a bar. It's where people expected, you know, good time, beer drinking, party music. But uh, there are stresses and strains of playing good time, hard partying, beer drinking music, with a, you know, which I learned a lot from Touch and Go. My experience is working with the bands there. So, you know, people, People found a balance, and I think in the in the case of Cranky, once once people began to get the idea of the of the label's aesthetics, and some of the bands became popular, and they didn't have to tour all the time, uh, people looked at that and said, "Hey, maybe I can do that too," or they they began to uh, to appreciate it. Or I think about you know contemporary terms, Stars of the Lid, which is a duo who are more popular than they ever have been. And the less they play and the less they record, the more popular they seem to get. Sue and Julia, they had a, uh, they had a very successful business and it was, uh, it was, it was, I think, powered by their their approach to how they treated the people that came into the club, how they treated the bands, and how they pe- treated the people that worked there. Um, you know, I don't think I ever saw a circle pit at the lounge acts. I I can recall a couple of people being kindly, you know, a couple of men for making trouble and you know, Julia especially would just take them by the hand and lead them out of the club like they've been bad little boys. They kind of had their heads down. There's a prevailing uh, stereotype or typecast of women as publicists or sort of salespeople that was operating back then. The women I worked with at Cargo, all of whom were uh, incredibly hardworking, incredibly well qualified, knowledgeable, and you know could uh, could sell anything to anybody, were kind of stuck in those salesperson roles. And I know other other women who were stuck in the uh, promotion role. They weren't seen as either strategic thinkers, or you know they weren't seen as being capable of directing the strategies of the company they worked for, they weren't seen as capable of managing other people. Uh, and there were, uh, in Chicago, there were women that that broke through and rose above that uh, those barriers, and I wanted to make sure that uh, I said something about that and gave uh, them the opportunity, some of them the opportunity to express uh, their, what they went through and how they felt about it. Uh, but it wasn't, you know, it's like the same thing with racial segregation. It's not like Chicago, all these barriers were broken down. You know, people, people had to work very hard, very persistently and get a lot of shit to get where they were. Um, and that was, uh, you know, that was, uh, that was an issue. It's still an issue. You know, the record business is just rife with sexual harassment and uh, bullshit like that. It seems to it seems to attract the sort of uh, the sort of man who, uh, as as Joel and I used to say, based on a Dan Klaus cartoon, bugfuckers, people who 
men who seem to take uh, delight in imposing their will on people with much less power and influence than themselves and self-aggrandizement. But there were there were women they made that that uh, got through that. They made incredible uh, contributions. They continue to make incredible contributions, and uh, you know they they deserved. I thought they deserved notice and that their work deserved to be recognized. Someone like uh, Sheila Sachs, who was the uh, art director at the Chicago Reader and started doing design for record labels. Uh, after that, is now a, a partner in Pravda Records, which is a label that I didn't cover in the book very well, but it's, I didn't cover them in the book at all. But they're a long-standing Chicago independent record label. It's been very successful over the years. So it was, um, it was an interesting. It was an interesting atmosphere to be in, but I think um, a lot of the barriers that women women face then are very similar to the barriers that women face now. And for musicians, it was uh, it was especially tough. Especially, uh, you know, I detailed Don Smithson uh, from Jessamy was an incredible bass player and you know her her reminiscences of how she had to fight to get her uh, musical ideas considered and into the mix within her own band and then the you know the, just like the constant stream of assumptions and, and stereotyping that she would get from men in the music business you know uh, Martha Schweinder from Bowery Electric the same thing um, it's interesting that they both played bass. So, you know, those sort of things still exist. I would, I would hope now, you know, you look out at least the indie rock landscape or whatever you might want to call the genre now, you see many more women artists, many, many more. You might even, you might even say that right now, at least in the American indie rock scene, the woman performer is the dominant voice. And it's um, you know a lot of women in the wider the wider scope played a big role in that. Uh, uh, simple the Simple Machines Handbook, which was written by women, you know, detailing how you could put out your own records. Um, a lot of women involved in labels on the West Coast, especially around Olympia, Washington. That whole that whole scene. A lot of women in the UK. You know, I didn't get into it much in the book, but when Steve Albini's second band, Rape Band, the uh, unfortunately titled band Rape Man, went on went for tour in the UK or put the record out in the UK, the record label, three three quarters of the staff at Blast First were women, and they just said no. Um. So, you know, there were other places across the world uh, at that time where women were getting the were beginning to uh, basically get some power and utilize that power and share their insights and their experiences with other women and with those men who uh, were interested and savvy enough to pay attention 
to learn from them. So it, uh, and I think it's, I think it's come down today, but the DIY, you know, the DIY ethos was not just for men, you know, and you could, I think you could play a sociologist and say that uh, women in the United States and other parts of the world have had to be more self-reliant anyway, given what the, the bullshit they had to wade their way through. So when they, they had the opportunity musically to assert those talents and those abilities, they did and they do. Oh, it's incredible. I mean, the nine, I live now in Urbana, Illinois, 120 miles south. And so from a distance, it just the stuff just continues to be pumping out and, and surprising and delighting me. ESS, I used to live uh, probably you know, four blocks away from ESS. And the way they responded to the challenges of COVID, number one, um, number one, just I think expanded their own influence and their own profile. But number two, I see bigger uh, institutions, especially where I live now, bigger performance institutions with many more resources who did nothing. You know, who, who sat on their hands and said, oh, well, what can I do with all this advanced audiovisual equipment that this large state university has provided me with and all these studios oh well i guess we can't do anything because we can't put on shows you know yes the yeah the, the quarantine concerts were just amazing and they're going to continue to do it you know catalytic sounds you know talk about self-reliance diy um amazing amazing stuff it's just, you know, I would say there's something in the water if I didn't know that there were people there who work so hard at it. It's been, it was bad before COVID for record stores and for record distributors Many music venues, music venues, performance venues make their money on alcohol. That's where the markup is. That's where the profit margin is for them. And over time, in those days, different venues were opening uh, and then closing, but different venues were popping up where people could listen to music and not necessarily uh, have a drink or have a drink of alcohol, alcoholic beverages. And so there were some opportunities there for a different type of audience and different types of bands to play uh, and to find each other. And then uh, as some larger cultural institutions and some uh, non-musical institutions began to take notice, there were opportunities for groups to perform there, whether it was you know, uh, Rockefeller Chapel at the University of Chicago or uh, the Museum of Contemporary Art there. There were some opportunities there that opened up for some groups that were not playing traditional rock music where, where there was a different context for what they were doing and uh, the possibility for a wider audience of all ages too, because 
you know, you can you can be 16 years old and get into a get into a show at Rockefeller Chapel or at an art museum that you couldn't do at the empty bottles, say. So, and those opportunities have widened, I think, and I think post in our late COVID period, uh, it seems like more opportunities like that are going to may arise because clubs are shutting down or not reopening. I read something today in The Guardian that was interesting about venues in the UK that are moving to a community ownership model, um, which is sort of interesting and not germane to the book, but those, in some ways, those things have all have happened over time, right? There's a, it's a place called Logan Square Auditorium in Chicago, or all sorts of places starting from, you know, Detroit's and playing in the Elks Club or whatever, where people could rent a space, right? And those, those possibilities have always been there. Uh, and they're often temporary, but they do exist. They pop up and then they disappear or, you know, are forced to close. But those sort of uh, temporary arrangements or those sort of ephemeral venues are always going to exist. Stars of the lid. Yeah, they still want to know. No, I'll see a social media post and they'll be like, when are you coming to Kansas City? <laughs> the answer is, well, we're not. And we probably never will. <laughs> but people don't want to hear that. They love it. They want more. You know? In that case, you know, denial creates attraction. Well, when they the first uh, the first couple of years they were there they uh, were out and playing. Joel and I used to uh, used to wait for what we called the rocket ship ride, which was the end of their set, where they would improvise this this slow build up into a huge huge crescendo that just sounded like something taking off. It was a it was in, you know, it was physical music. It was not a, you know, wind chimes and good vibes. There was a, there's also, that's another thing that they, they had their edge. They had a, and they often had a, you know, a, and Mark Nelson's music as Pan American still has a very, to me, a very melancholy, uh, wistful side to it. It wasn't, uh, you know, was about always about feeling good or zoning out quite the quite the uh, opposite and i'm old enough to to think of new age as a pejorative i know a lot of people now that's been uh, repositioned Given the given the domination of streaming now, and that I am interested to see if anyone who reads the book 
find anything in the depictions there that would be of use to them now. Because networks were built, they fell apart or they, you know, they dissipated. New networks will have to be made. And I think there are lessons from the 80s and 90s there, but I'll be curious to see what people that are working in the business now or people who have bands or want to start venues or record labels to see if they find anything useful. It's a lot easier when you're in a pastel environment to make pastel music. 